Thank you guys for being willing to talk with one another, um, and thanks for being here. Uh, last week, we had one of our most crowded Sundays. Today, we have one of our least crowded Sundays, okay? People are traveling. I'm glad you're here. And uh, one of the things that I remind myself of when I look out and I see of, you know just a few people in the room is um, that God has ordained that you would be here today, and uh, I think Psalm 139 makes that clear. And so even if there were three of you, I would absolutely believe that God had something Uh, very particular to communicate to those three of you, or in this case, 107 of you, or whatever it is. Um, So anyway, it may be a conversation with someone that's here this morning. It may be a song that we've sung. It may be a time of reflection. It may be something that Steve said. It may be some scripture we're going to read in a minute. But I really would have you remember that you're not here by accident, and that I really do believe that God's drawn you to this place. And so I would encourage you to hear and to listen for what it is that might Uh, God might be trying to say to you this morning. So um, Steve already made clear we're in our fourth week of Advent. So tomorrow night, we're going to light the big red candle, which is what you do on Christmas Eve. And uh, so the first, you know, these, these four candles up here represent the four themes of Advent. And so those four themes, the first one, week one over here on the short candle, was uh, on hope. And we defined hope as uh, something that's not only an optimistic anticipation, but it's also a confident expectation. And so hope, biblical hope, is not only an optimistic anticipation, which is what we typically think of in uh, our vernacular language, but it's also a confident expectation. So that's hope. Number two, we talked about peace. And we said that peace, biblically, is a word describing an emotional state where our hearts are at rest. But more importantly, it's a concept describing a world where all that is wrong is made right. One of the key themes of Christianity is this, this idea of restoration. And so what we see in Jesus is that when he is raised from the dead, his, he's restored physically. And we believe that though this world right now is tainted and marred with cancer and depression and uh, all sorts of brokenness, that we believe that what God is doing is he is actually in the process of reforming, restoring this world that he has created, and one day he will bring it ultimately to consummation where the world will be made right. That's peace. Number three, last week we talked about Christian love, and we talked about how Christian love is an action really more than it's an emotion. So it's an emotion as well, but it's, but it's really an action, and it loves even in the absence of anything lovely, which is just a wonderful idea. It's a wonderful concept. As we looked at the four different Greek words, it was interesting to see that the one that's used for God most often, this word agape, is loving someone in the absence of anything particularly lovable in that person. And then by definition, it's selfless and self-sacrificial. Those are the three uh, themes of um, Advent so far. Today, we're going to jump into the fourth. Steve's already mentioned it. The songs have hearkened to it. And it's the idea of joy, biblical joy. And we're going to, I'm going to pray. And then after I pray, we're going to jump into a clip, a little YouTube clip. Um, that sort of sets up this idea of joy. And uh, it is longer than uh, what I would usually um, sort of put into a sermon. But I just ask that you be patient with me on Christmas and you sit back and enjoy it. So let me take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thanks um, again very much for having us here. Um, I thank you that you care about us and that you love us and uh, that you desire actually for us to flourish and and to thrive as we... um, seek to, to follow you. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would um, 
that you would beckon us to you, that you would invite us to walk with you, and that we would follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
quick question. Does anybody know the name of that piece of music? Ode to Joy, come on, right? Joy is the theme, got it? Anyway, so, uh, so Ode to Joy, that, um, let, me, let me read some of the words really quickly. So um, Beethoven wrote um, that uh, particular movement, and he based it on a poem actually by a German um, translated, the, the, the poem goes like this. Oh, friends, no more of these sounds, sounds of sadness, sounds of sorrow. Let us sing more cheerful songs, more songs full of joy, joy, joy. Thus, brothers, you should run your race like a hero going to victory. You millions, I embrace you. This kiss for all the world. Brothers above the starry canopy, there must dwell a loving father. Do you fall in worship, you millions? World, do you know your creator? Seek him in the heavens. Above the stars must he dwell. So Beethoven took this really wonderful poem. It's a lot longer than that. And he put it to music in 1824 when he composed this movement. It was three years before his death. Beethoven's premiere took place in Vienna on May 17th of that same year. And despite having not really practiced it because of his illness, and you know that he um, became deaf by that point in time, when they rehearsed it and then presented it to the audience, the audience was ecstatic. It was the first time that Beethoven had performed in 12 years, and so he had been really silent for 12 years due to his sickness and deafness. And at the end of the performance there in Vienna on May the 7th, uh, 1824, it was said that Beethoven continued conducting even though the music had ended because he couldn't hear. Uh, One of the soloists stopped him and turned him around to accept his applause. The audience was was well aware of Beethoven's health issues and his inability to hear his hearing loss. So in addition to clapping, they threw their hats and scarves in the air so he could see their overwhelming support. As I remember reading after this, uh, his last words were this, in heaven I will hear, in heaven I will hear. In other words, what enabled him to write this beautiful movement, Ode to Joy, was the reality that there was this other transcendent good thing that awaited him, the restoration of his body and his ability to hear. And so the question is, what is joy and what does it mean to us and how is it related to this story of Beethoven? Well, let's jump in really quickly and we'll move from that pretty awesome performance to some uh, mundane discussions of what joy looks like. Well, let me start off by saying this. It's helpful to understand joy in contrasting it with happiness and sadness. So one of the ways in which you can understand joy is you contrast it with something that seems familiar like happiness and then something that seems unfamiliar like sadness. And so here's the definition of happiness for me. The definition of happiness is this. It's a positive emotional response to something that's imminent or impermanent. So it's a positive emotional response, but it's in relation to something that's um, nearby, but it's not permanent, if that makes sense. And so I'll give you a quick illustration. So I had a crush on this girl named Tamara Casey from the time I was probably in third grade to seventh grade. And I could go into all sorts of reasons why, but I just had this little crush. And basically, she wouldn't give me the time of day. Well, when I was in sixth grade, I sort of worked up the courage to ask her to go with me. That's what we used to say back in the day, you know. And I don't know what that meant because I never actually talked to her at all. But, 
But I think during this particular Friday, I remember it was a Friday, we had a bowling party that night, and I thought, I'm going to go for it. And so I'm pretty sure I wrote her a note, and I gave it to one of my friends, and one of my friends gave it to one of her friends who gave it to her, right, and saying, will you go with me? And via her friend, via my friend back to me, she responded by saying, yes, I will go with you, right? And so I just remember being on cloud nine. I was so happy. And so, you know, I just was buzzing with energy, and I went home that evening, and I thought, tonight's the bowling party. It's going to be awesome. And so, yeah, I was so elated. I was totally happy. And happiness, of course, is a positive emotional response to something imminent or or impermanent, right? So what about sadness? Well, sadness is a negative emotional response to something imminent or impermanent. So happiness is in response to something impermanent. Sadness is something, a negative emotional response in response to something impermanent. <clears throat> that night, four hours later, I went to the bowling party. Immediately, I could see that Tamara was acting a little cold to me, a little distant. And then I got a note from her friend via my friend saying that she wanted to break up with me. <laughs> Seriously. I was very sad, needless to say. In fact, I went home that evening and I listened to all the sad songs on Chicago 17. If any of you guys remember Peter Cetera, your hard habit to break, I remember the feeling, all those songs, man, I was very, very sad. And that's totally appropriate for us to respond in happiness or in sadness to some impermanent thing. It's completely appropriate to do that. Jesus did it, right? Jesus was sad. He was sorrowful. Listen to the words of Isaiah and then the words of John. It says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, right? How often do we think about Jesus as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, right? Jesus not only bore his own sorrows and sadness and grief, but he bore ours ours as well, right? He was a man of sorrows. And then, of course, we see in John 11 that Jesus wept, that he entered into the pain and the suffering of Mary and Martha so much so that it became his own grief and his own sorrow at the death of their brother. Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, an influential preacher and doctor. Here's what he has to say about Jesus and joy and sorrow. He says this, in any definition we may give of New Testament joy, we do not go to a dictionary. We go instead to the New Testament. This is something quite peculiar, which cannot be explained. It's a quality which belongs to the Christian life in its essence, so that in our definition of joy, we must be very careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. The world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it. And yet he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that definition of joy. So Jesus was sorrowful, and it's absolutely appropriate for us to be sorrowful as well. But our joy transcends and overcomes both our sadness and our happiness, which is why the psalmist can say, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. So there's a way in which joy transcends both happiness and sadness. As Steve said earlier, it's far deeper. Let's look at the the etymology, the roots of this word that we call joy. In the Greek, it's defined kara, 
And it's related to the word charis. So if you know someone named charis, um, that word translated in English means grace. And biblically, the term grace means undeserved favor or blessing, right? And so that's, that's distinct from mercy. Grace is positive. Mercy is sort of negative. And so quick illustration, your child, if you have a three-year-old child, for example, and uh, your child disobeys you, then you not only don't punish them, that would be mercy, maybe they deserve to be punished in some way, but instead you go out and buy them a toy, that would be grace. And so grace is when you give someone something that they don't actually deserve, maybe when they actually deserve the opposite. And so joy is related to this concept of grace. So what is it? So what joy is, and when you put the various pieces of the puzzle together, joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent or transcendent grace of God. Let me read that one more time. Joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent or transcendent grace of God. So we're happy when something in the here and now goes our way. Our football team wins. Someone gives us a gift that we really like. Our kids are particularly well-behaved on a road trip. And so we're happy. In the same manner, we're sad when something in the here and now does not go our way. Our football team loses. We don't get the job that we were going after or our significant other breaks up with us. And so we are sad. Joy, however, always transcends our immediate situation, whether it's good or bad, because joy is a positive emotional response to the permanent or transcendent grace of God. In other words, the transcendent reality, the transcendent reality, permanent reality of God's grace, his love for us, his adoption of us, his forgiveness of us, his justification of us, etc., etc., the list goes on and on, that all of those graces are so much better than our imminent reality that no matter what happens in the here and now, we can actually rejoice in the then and there, if that makes sense. Here's what Ravi Zacharias says. If you guys are familiar with Ravi Zacharias, he's a pretty brilliant Indian um, apologist. He says this, for the Christian, joy is fundamental and sorrow is peripheral. So joy is fundamental and sorrow is peripheral. However, for the secular person, sorrow is fundamental and joy is peripheral. It's a great quote. In other words, part of what he's saying here is that part and parcel of our ontology as children of God, called by God, adopted by God, sons and daughters of God, is that joy actually is at the center of our being because of all of those transcendent realities. And it's true that we're filled with sorrow and grief just like Jesus was, but those things are a ring or two out from our center, which should be joy. Now, the question is, what does the Bible tell us about joy? And the answer is, there's a bunch of stuff and I can't dig into all of it right now, so I'm gonna dig into three things. The first thing that we see the Bible telling us about joy is about us. And it says we can be joyful because God himself is our reward. So if you do a, you know, go to Bible.com and you type in joy, you'll see these verses in relation to joy. Here's what Job 22 says. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. Let that sink in for a minute. Let the, let the sort of the irony of that statement sink in. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. So in the midst of suffering, Christians can and do rejoice. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. 
If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks and the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. And so there's this tie-in here where the author here is saying the righteous, or in this our case, believers, Christians, we can, in the midst of ruin and grief and struggle, we can rejoice in the midst of all that because God himself is our reward. So what we're being told here is that in the midst of all of this pain, Christians can rejoice because we have something that can't be taken away from us. We have a relationship with the living God, which is of the utmost value. Does that make sense? That our relationship with God is actually more valuable and more important to us than those uh, imminent and impermanent things. So I've talked about lots of times about playing soccer in college. And, uh, and it's interesting because I look back at those four years and I would probably do it all over again if my body could handle it, which it can't. Um, but playing soccer at Covenant or playing soccer in college wasn't the reward, although I absolutely loved soccer. I mean, really loved it. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't begin to tell you how many hours I spent in my backyard by myself with the floodlights on in the dark dribbling around the soccer ball. So I loved soccer, but that wasn't the reward. We had great seasons there. We were 20-3 and three my freshman year, 19-3 in my senior year, so we won a lot of games. But winning wasn't the reward. The reward, the real blessing of that time, that four years at Covenant College playing soccer, was the friendships. It was the road trips. It was the pranks in the locker room. It was the exaggerated stories of personal heroics, right? But that was the reward. It was those relationships. In fact, I just spent the last two days with four of my soccer buddies from college who we've been meeting together for 26 years now. But it was those relationships were the reward. And that's what the author of Job is telling us here is that God is our reward. He's better than all that other really good stuff. And that can't be taken away from you. Here's what John Piper says. John Piper says, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. That's what we were created to do, is to walk with God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. But what he hits into there, and I think he's right, is that God is ultimately the gospel, right? That's our greatest joy. And so, so often we're concerned about gaining happiness via these ridiculously trivial things, you know, whether it's a new phone or a video game or who knows what it is, or getting a PR in a race. Both of those things are temporary. They're both fine things. They're good things. Or even by going on a vacation, though that's a temporary thing too, but the true reward of Christianity is God who is eternal. Some of you can actually remember when you became a Christian, right? When you when you realize that God was there and that he desired to have a relationship with you and made a way for that to happen, and you experience joy and forgiveness for sure. You experience joy in finding meaning in your life, no doubt. But many of you remember the joy of simply walking with God and being in relationship with the author of reality. He was your reward, and you experience joy. So we can be joyful because God himself is our reward. It's, it's transcendent, right? It's permanent. It can't be taken away from us. The second thing we see in Scripture is that we can be joyful because of the resurrection. So I'm going to read a, a, 
section of Psalms here say this, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so over and over again, we see in scripture and in the lives of Christians that they experience joy in the midst of loss and suffering and pain precisely because of the promise of the resurrection of the dead. It sounds a little bit morbid to talk about that right before Christmas, but the reality is without that, we probably would despair, but instead we can have joy. There's a man named Tony Campola who is a sociology professor up in Pennsylvania at a university. And um, I actually read a, a little um, sermon that he wrote recently, and in it, it was really talking about joy. It was the same kind of concept. And I'm going to just read it. It's uh, actually from Christianity Today. He says this. So this is Tony Campolo speaking. He says, I went to my first black funeral when I was 16 years old. A friend of mine, Clarence, had died. The pastor was incredible. From the pulpit, he talked about the resurrection in beautiful terms. He had us thrilled. He came down from the pulpit, went to the family, and comforted them from the 14th chapter of John. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me, said Jesus. Clarence has gone to heavenly mansions. Then, for the last 20 minutes of the sermon, he actually preached to the open casket. Now that is drama. He yelled at the corpse, Clarence, Clarence. He said it with such authority. I would not have been surprised had there been an answer. He said, Clarence, there were a lot of things we should have said to you that were never said to you. You got away too fast, Clarence. You got away too fast. He went down his litany of beautiful things that Clarence had done for people. And when he finished, here's the dramatic part. He said, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, there's only one thing to say, Good night. Good night, Clarence. He grabbed the lid of the casket and slammed it shut. Good night, Clarence. Boom. Shockwaves went over the congregation. And as the preacher lifted his head, you could see that there was a smile on his face. He said, good night, Clarence. Good night, Clarence. Because I know, I know that God is going to give you a good morning. The choir stood and started singing. Oh, that great morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. We were dancing in the aisles and hugging each other. It was then that I knew the joy of the Lord, a joy that in the face of death laughs and sings and dances, for there is no sting in death. I would have enjoyed being at that funeral. The bad news is that we are all going to die, right? It's 100 out of 100, 100%. But the good news is that God will raise us from the dead to new life with him, and so we can be joyful because of the resurrection of the dead. We can be joyful because God himself is our reward. And then finally, we can be joyful because God rejoices over us. Listen to the words of Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Judah is facing the threat of the Babylonians. They're going to come 
and threaten them. And the, the people of Judah are filled with despair. But into that despair, God speaks to his disobedient children, and they have been disobedient, reminding them that he is with them, that he loves them, and maybe most importantly, that he rejoices over them. How many of us need to hear that about God today? How many of us need to hear that the God of heaven desires to have a relationship with you, desires to be with you, that he rejoices over you? I mean, that almost sounds blasphemous to talk about God that way, but it's true. And the reason that I know it's true is because as a father, I understand what it is to rejoice over my own children. And so I read this now and I go, wow, I get it. You're not that different than me, God. You rejoice over your children. When our kids were, when May and Sam in particular were born, we were living on Lookout Mountain and uh, the area was really walkable and I would put them in the stroller and I'd walk around Fairland up on Lookout Mountain and I would sing songs to them until somebody passed me and I'd quit singing for a minute. I, I wouldn't sing then. But I would sing these songs to them and, um, and I would do this with Levi too. He just wasn't born yet up on Lookout Mountain. And, uh, but I would sing these songs because I wanted to, to, to let them know, even though they couldn't you know, understand anything at this point in time when they were babies, but I wanted them to know that I rejoiced over them with singing, right? And we had these habits that I did for years as I dropped them off to school or as I put them in bed at night, and I would say, who loves you? And I would say, how much? And then I would say, who loves you most of all? Right? And I was trying to always ask them these questions, and I would always try to tell them I'm proud of them. And in all these different ways, I was trying to say I'm failing and I failed and I'm impatient and I'm tired and I've got all sorts of problems, but I need you to know that I rejoice over you, that I love you, that I'm proud of you. In fact, um, John Eldridge in a book called Fathered by God, he says the most important thing, It's about boys. The book's about boys and men in this book, Fathered by God. He says the most important thing that a a boy needs to know up until the age of 13 is that he's a cherished that he's cherished by his father. I don't know. I don't know many I don't know many men that felt particularly cherished by their fathers. And I don't know many women that felt particularly cherished by their mothers or their fathers. But Eldridge, as a psychologist, is saying that's the most powerful thing we need to know is that we are cherished sons and we are cherished daughters. We need to know that God rejoices over us. Do you believe, do you believe that God rejoices over you. Do you believe that? It's really hard to believe that. But listen to what Jesus had to say in Luke chapter 15. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Jesus, 
paints this picture. He's basically talking to the Pharisees and saying, why are you so grumpy about these sinners entering into a relationship with God? Don't you know that he rejoices over their return? Of course, he tells the story of the prodigal son. And the big twist in the story is that the super rebellious you know, younger brother who squandered everything and offended his father, when he comes back, the father doesn't even let him apologize. The father runs to meet him and throws his arms around him and throws his robe on him and puts his royal ring on his finger and puts the shoes on his feet and, and kills the fattened calf and has a celebration. Why? Because the father rejoices at the return of his son. That's the gospel, right? The gospel is this. The gospel is that God rejoices over you. Hear that now. Those of you who worry that God is angry with you, if you trust in Jesus, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, you need to know that God rejoices over you even when it's not deserved, especially when it's not deserved. You need to know that God rejoices over you in the same way that I rejoice over my children who I love them dearly, but you're not perfect, but I still rejoice over you. Those of you who worry that God looks at you with a furrowed brow, know that God rejoices over you even when that's precisely what isn't deserved. Again, this idea of joy is that it's, uh, it's in response, it's a positive response to this permanent thing that can't be taken away, to the grace of God. It's this transcendent reality that God loves you and rejoices over us that allowed G.K. Chesterton, thinker and theologian, to write, joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would defeat our rebellious hearts with an understanding that you love us and that you rejoice over us. And so, Father, I pray that even in this season of Advent and Christmas, that that would be our ability to rejoice, um, that we would think about all of the ways and reflect on all of the ways in which you have shown us grace and mercy and graces and mercies that cannot be taken away, that are permanent. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, draw us to yourself today and help us to rejoice. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.